I want to welcome everyone to today's Vet Girl podcast, where we have a very special guest, Dr. Kiara Barr, who is a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and an anesthesiologist. Dr. Barr, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. Now, before we get into today's Vet Girl podcast, can you just give our listeners, our Vet Girl listeners, a brief background on yourself and what you're doing over at the University of Pennsylvania? Yes, thank you. I'm currently an anesthesia lecturer. I did my residency in anesthesia at Penn. I also went to vet school at Penn, so I'm a true Pennwee. And now that having completed boards, I'm staying on for a year and spending my time both on clinics and teaching students, as well as hopefully getting some more time in to do additional research. Excellent. And you're certainly in good company because as our Vet Girl listeners know, Justine and I found home at Penn at some point in our careers as well. So we are very excited to have you here with us and you're, you're part of the club here on the Vet Girl podcast. So thank you. <laughs> now, the reason I was so excited to get in touch with you and have you on our podcast is I was doing a, my typical monthly journal browsing to see what's new and what's exciting out there in the literature. And most importantly, as our Vet Girl listeners know, clinically relevant stuff. We want to know what is going to be new in our world that's going to change the way we practice medicine. And I came across an article that you were primary author on, and I was really excited because I think this is super clinical and things that everyone is going to want to know and potentially change the way they work in practice. And the name of the article that you published in JAVMA in November of this year, 2017, was The Effect of Blood Collection by the Push-Pull Technique from an indwelling catheter versus direct venipuncture on venous blood gas values before and after administration of valfaxalone on propofol in dogs. Pretty cool. Can you just give me a little bit of a background on why you were doing this study? What piqued your interest to say, hey, can we take blood in a different way? Was it clinical? What, what really brought you about making this journal? I actually came up with this idea in conjunction with Dr. Silverstein while on my ICU rotation as an anesthesia resident at Penn. I noticed that we were taking many blood samples from our critical care patients and sometimes via direct venipuncture sometimes via IV catheter. And as I'm sure you're aware of, direct venipuncture can cause repeated trauma to the blood vessels, as well as pain and anxiety for our awake patients. So sometimes we would draw blood from an IV catheter if we had one in place. And there are three general methods from drawing blood from IV catheters. The first is to use the discard method where you draw a pre-sample and then discard that blood, and then draw your sample for submission. And the pre-sample is to try and eliminate any contamination from heparinized saline or any other drugs you've given through the catheter. Alternatively, you can use a reinfusion technique, which is what we were commonly using on clinics, whereby you draw your pre-sample, then draw your sample, and once you're done that, give your pre-sample back to the patient via the IV catheter and then flush it. And one of the concerns for this is that you could potentially contaminate that sample with environmental bacteria or a clot could form in that pre-sample and you could reinfuse that into your patient or even potentially you could mix up your two syringes and accidentally submit your pre-sample syringe instead of your sample syringe. So while I was on my rotation, I saw that the 
methods were referenced in one of the critical care textbooks, but there wasn't much veterinary literature to back it up. And so the third method I saw researched in humans, but not in veterinary medicine, is the push-pull or mixing method. And the benefit of this is that you draw your pre-sample, and instead of disconnecting the syringe, you immediately reinfuse it. And so you're at less risk of contaminating that sample or having a clot form or something like that. And so you do this process three times and then draw your sample for submission. And so in discussing this with Dr. Silverstein, we realized that there really wasn't any literature out there comparing these different methods. And so that's how we came up with the idea to look at direct venipuncture versus the push-pull or mixing method. And then additionally, being an anesthesia resident, I was always asked to draw a blood sample after induction of anesthesia to check and see how the patient was responding to therapy or if the Paxtel volume had changed. And I know that some anesthetics like ketamine, thiopental, and propofol have been shown to have an effect on the hematocrit in dogs, but there wasn't much out there on alfaxalone. So I wanted to compare propofol and alfaxalone on these venous blood gas values. Excellent. And so for our Vecro listeners that may be having at times on an audio podcast a little bit of a hard time visualizing, can you describe step-by-step the push-pull method for somebody that has not seen that before? So did you get a different type of syringe or exactly what did you do to either get your sample and then at the same time give back the blood in that manner? Yeah, it is a very straightforward method once you're used to it. So we would place our IV catheters. And for this study, we wanted it to be as standardized as possible. So we used a 20-gauge short IV catheter in the cephalic vein. And then we attached a T-set to that. So uh, just a small T-set attached to the IV catheter. And then from the distal port where you would hook up your IV fluids or your syringe pump or something like that, we would attach a 3ml syringe. We would draw back about one ml of blood and whatever flush was sitting in the T-set. And then we would immediately push that back through the IV catheter without disconnecting it or clamping it or changing anything. We would repeat that process three times. And then once the third sample was reinfused back into the patient, we would attach a fresh syringe and draw our sample for submission for the venous blood gas. So for us, we drew one ml and then just flushed the catheter and went on from there. That's great. And obviously, the other thing that I worry about for many of my patients that are getting repeated venipuncture, aside from some of the comments you mentioned, repeatedly having to stick them, it can be a painful process. We always worry in a lot of our patients, especially the smaller patients, sort of about exsanguinating them. You know, they over time, especially these hospitalized patients that are constantly having these blood work samples checked, they can become anemic or even get some electrolyte abnormalities. So it's a great opportunity for us to have different ways to safely get venipuncture blood samples from our patients. 
Absolutely. And I know there's at least one study out there in cats showing that when they were in the hospital critical care for a long time, they became more anemic. And one of the thoughts was because of iatrogenic blood loss from all these blood samples. So with the push-pull method, you don't have to worry about discarding a pre-sample as the way you do with the discard method. Perfect. Can you describe to us in this study how many patients approximately that you had and some of the interesting findings? So this was a prospective randomized clinical study where we were able to enroll 30 healthy dogs that were at Penn to undergo elective surgical procedures. We randomly assigned these dogs into two groups so that they could either receive propofol for induction or alfaxlone for induction. And then additionally, we also randomly assigned them either to get sampled via direct venipuncture first or via the push-pull method first because the paired blood samples initially were taken prior to any sort of pre-medication or anesthesia. And so we wanted to account for any changes in Paxil volume, glucose, or electrolytes based on the patient's anxiety level. So we randomized it. Some patients got the direct venipuncture sample drawn first and others got the push-pull sample drawn first. We then pre-medicated all the dogs with methadone IM and then induced them either with propofol or alfaxlone, depending on which group they were in, and again, immediately pulled paired blood samples from the cephalic veins, one via direct venipuncture and one from the previously placed IV catheter using the push-pull method. And so our main findings were that there were a few statistically significant differences in things like total protein, CO2, um, some electrolytes like potassium and chloride, as well as bicarbonate and base access. However, even though there were some very small statistically significant differences in these variables, once we did Bland-Altman analysis, we found that there was a very high level of agreement between the two methods of blood sampling, with 90 to 100% of the samples falling within the limits of agreement. And even more importantly, these small differences were also within the acceptable level of variability that's allowed by the federal guidelines that set allowable analytical error for laboratories um, and also those set by the American Society of Veterinary Clinical Pathologists. So even though there were some very small differences based on which method we used, these were not clinically relevant and also were within the allowable variability for machines by clinical pathologists. The other really interesting finding for us was that both alfaxalone and propofol showed statistically significant differences in pH and CO2. However, before, this is statistically significant before and after induction of anesthesia. However, there was no difference between the two induction agents. And even with the differences noted before and after induction, these were still clinically insignificant. And so it does not appear that pulling a sample immediately after induction with either of these two agents should significantly affect your clinical judgment on venous blood gas values. So if I'm understanding this and trying to get the message out to our Vecoral listeners as well, using this push-pull technique 
that was described in this study and obviously uh, had some reference in human medicine as well. It sounds like this technique can be used on anesthetized patients, especially with these two drugs we're talking about, alfaxin and propofol, in a sense to safely get a blood sample from a patient. At the same time, the values that you're describing, electrolytes, pH, etc., while there may be some very, very minimal differences, doesn't seem to affect our clinical judgment. And at the same time, we're not wasting blood as far as a discard sample. Is that a good summary? That's absolutely correct. We can use this method, the push-pull method, not only in our anesthetized patients, but also in our awake patients. And these very small differences in electrolyte values um, are not clinically significant and also within the allowable variability just based on machines. Excellent. And that was going to be really my next question. Is this something we can do for patients that are hospitalized? Because many of our hospitalized patients for a variety of reasons, have an IV catheter placed. They may or may not be on fluids, but at the same time, especially the ones on fluids, at least once per day, we're trying to get a blood sample from them for electrolyte, blood glucose, acid base evaluation. And so this being a way to make sure we minimize blood loss and not so much blood loss as an injury, for example, but blood loss as far as a planned sampling would be something that would be advantageous, obviously something we can continue to do. Is this change the way you think that you or your colleagues now are practicing? Is anyone that you're aware of using the push-pull technique instead of, for example, the discard method in the clinical setting outside of anesthesia? In the anesthesia department, we are using the push-pull method regularly to sample from our patients for all the benefits that we've been discussing throughout this podcast. However, this study was limited in that it was only done in fairly large dogs with recently placed 20-gauge cephalic catheters. So I think we'd like to explore further whether this would work as well with smaller catheter sizes where we would be concerned for maybe an increased risk of hemolysis or for catheters where patients are receiving infusions through them, um, especially infusions with glucose or electrolyte um, additives. That being said, there is a lot of research out there in human patients showing that this method does work even with infusions. And so I would be cautiously optimistic that we will be able to use this method throughout the hospital going forward. I love that phrase, cautiously optimistic. I use that with clients all the time because they want the, (laughs) how are things going to go? What's the prognosis? Are we out of the woods? And you know, it's always hard to have that magic ball. So I, I too use that phrase all the time, cautiously optimistic. And you bring up one of the two points that I was actually thinking in my head as we were chatting on this podcast, what happens if there are additives? And so that, that question, not that it's answered, but as you said, we're cautiously optimistic that that has been shown to to be okay in human medicine, but further studies are needed. My other thought, and you mentioned this as well, is what happens for the the smaller catheters? Because of course, a lot of our smaller patients, whether it's smaller just in breed size, or of course, neonates in pediatrics, sometimes we check their blood sugars every two hours on the really sick ones, just wanting to make sure they're not getting hypoglycemic or they're maintaining their glucose on whatever supplementation they're on. There is a study which many of us do know in the anesthesia and critical care world. It was a JVEC study back in 2013 that actually compared heparinized saline 
versus just saline for maintaining a peripheral intravenous catheter patency because like I'm sure you as well, many of us, for the patient that has a prolonged hospitalization, while of course when we place the catheter, we can get a blood sample for analysis, over time it just seems harder to actually be able to sample from that catheter, whether it's a clot or whether for some reason there's some spasm of that that vein not sure, but it just gets harder to use that catheter for actually phlebotomy to get a sample the longer they're in a hospital. And at least in this study, now they used 18-gauge cephalic catheters rather than 20, but they said that in their study, the catheter that was either heparized saline or regular saline flushed every six hours for 42 hours maintained patency. There was not a, a difference between the two. So as long as it seems like something is going through that catheter, whether it's consistently or intermittently in this study every six hours, the catheter patency seemed reasonable. So hopefully that's a good indication that we may be able to use these catheters for the pull technique for a longer period of time. Again, cautiously optimistic rather than just that patient under anesthesia because as an emergency and critical care person, I I, uh, often have those patients with me for a period of time and I would love to use this procedure in May after we chat today, start playing around with this procedure to see if it is a viable way for me to get a sample from a patient rather than having to discard and waste good blood and risk low blood sugar, low PCV and total protein loss changes, which can, of course, be detrimental to that patient. Absolutely. And just anecdotally um, in clinics, we have had some success using this push-pull method with some smaller catheters, even 22-gauge catheters. And in patients that come to us with a previously placed IV catheter that may have been placed the day before or even several days before, we find that this method still seems to work. However, we don't have the rigorous scientific study to back that up yet. Now, you were commenting on a specific catheter size, your 20-gauge catheter. For our Vecro listeners, was there an average-sized patient that you were using for this? Could you use it on a smaller patient? Could you use it on a larger patient? What, what size patient were you average using for this study? Our patients were for this study were over 10 kilos just to make it easier to place a 20-gauge catheter and also so that we were confident that we could take multiple blood samples and not risk causing an iatrogenic anemia or change in any other blood values. We wouldn't cause them harm, but this could be used in any size patient um, with a 20-gauge catheter in, I would feel very comfortable using. And even sometimes we manage to get a 20-gauge catheter in a nice, decent-sized cat. So most of our patients undergoing anesthesia will have a 20-gauge catheter in place. Occasionally, they'll have a 22-gauge and maybe even a 24-gauge in our tiny little kittens. And as I said before, we were able to do this just clinically in 22-gauge catheters as well. I can't say that I've tried it in a 24-gauge. Excellent. So if I could just bring a take-home message for our Vecro listeners about the push-pull technique, certainly seems to be a viable option for at least patients that are greater than 10 kilograms and under anesthesia. We are both cautiously optimistic that this may work for smaller patients as well as 
patients on additives. It does require no pre-sample, so we don't have to worry about discarding that, and that'll prevent some unnecessary blood loss. And I think it also has the option and the potential to reduce the number of times that we're sticking a patient, which, of course, will improve patient comfort and hopefully patient care. So uh, a great study. Now, I do have to pick your brain as an anesthesiologist because you are a coveted commodity. If many of our Vecro listeners are like myself right now, we are a little bit worried about the pure mu opioid shortage. I don't know if that's something you're feeling as well. Absolutely. I got two calls the last week I was on clinics from practices that are having a really hard time getting any pure mu agonists, even morphine. And so that's something with the opioid crisis that we are facing as anesthesiologists and as all practitioners as we try and find appropriate analgesic solutions for our patients. So I'm going to put you on the spot with one question. I won't be mean and ask you 10 questions, but I want you to tell me what is one drug since the opioid crisis started that you're finding yourself using more, either oral or intravenous? I'd say for intravenous for our patients under anesthesia and in the perioperative period, we're using more and more dexmedetomidine as infusions for max bearing benefits as well as for analgesic properties, as well as a pre-med. Um, we used to rely heavily on pure mu agonists as part of our pre-medication. And then in dogs, I would say I also really like lidocaine infusions for their analgesic properties as well as anti-inflammatory and maybe even promotility, prokinetic properties. So I'd say dexmedetomidine in both cats and dogs, and then lidocaine and lidocaine infusions in dogs in the perioperative period. And then for analgesics orally, I'm a big fan of gabapentin. I find that works fairly well, especially in our older arthritic patients. I love those answers, especially the dexmedetomidine. I'm using dexmedetomidine more and more these days, and I don't do a lot of the pre-med stuff, but I do a lot of the post-operative stuff, and I find that especially synergistic with some of the opioids, it just gives them enough combination of sedation and analgesia together. Now, I'm going to pick your brain just on the dexmedetomidine for our Vecoral listeners because I think when many of our Vecoral listeners hear dexmedetomidine, they're used to using that drug for the laceration, for the marrow bone around the jaw, for the fish hook in the paw. And so they give the chart dose of dexmedetomidine. And I jokingly tell people the heart rate goes down to 10. They become incredibly <laughs> vasoconstricted. You feel their femoral pulses and it throws you across the room. You finish your procedure, you reverse them with antecedent and they wake up. But when you and I right now, we're talking about these dexmedetomidine doses, we're not talking about those same doses that cause that major peripheral vasoconstriction and the reflex bradycardia, we're talking about much lower doses for premedication, for sedation, for mild analgesia. So can you describe and report to our Vecoral listeners when you're giving a pre-med dose, for example, for a dog, what that dose is, microgram per kilogram, or if you have them on a constant rate infusion, what that infusion rate is? 
Absolutely. So for our pre-medications, I typically stay below five micrograms per kilogram of dexmedetomidine. I am. Most of our patients will get, I'd say, two and a half to five micrograms per kilogram of dexmedetomidine IM, usually in combination with an opioid uh, if that's available. And then for my IV infusions, I usually run them at a half a microgram per kilogram per hour. You can do a loading dose. Uh, I find that even a quarter to a half a microgram per kilogram IV as a loading dose works well. Sometimes if I'm really concerned about the cardiovascular effect, but I find that a CRI of dexmedetomidine is indicated, I'll just start that CRI at one microgram per kilogram per hour with no loading dose, give that over 15 minutes so that that is a quarter microgram per kilogram of dexmedetomidine infused over that time, and then turn it back down to a half microgram per kilogram per hour. And I find that I don't see as dramatic of cardiovascular effects when I use it in that manner. And yet it is truly max bearing. So it decreases the amount of anesthetic needed to maintain the patient under anesthesia, as well as having analgesic properties. Well, Dr. Barr, I wanted to really thank you for being here with us today. It's a great help to our Vecro listeners. Not only do we know a couple new opioid alternatives out there, but most importantly, this is a great study that you did at the University of Pennsylvania for understanding how we can better care for our patients either under anesthesia or potentially in the future, as we said, cautiously optimistic in the future that these are things that we could be doing for our in-hospital patients to prevent things like blood loss, electrolyte abnormalities, and some of the deleterious consequences we see from prolonged hospitalization and constant venipunctures. And so thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great chatting with you about this paper as well as alternatives for opioids.